often folks will say, oh, you know, he's, a, he's writing about Muslim American identity. I'm not. No, I'm not. Mm-hmm. For many people, seeing characters who are struggling in some cases with their place in this country as part of the sort of existential circumstance of their lives becomes a political statement or becomes like some conscious artistic intention. Do you like books? I'm outlining a new writing project. Who wrote this book? Read it. Read it. Sometimes I'd write something. What are you writing? Have you written anything lately? I'm Amanda Stern, and this is Bookable. On today's show, identity politics. What happens when you write about the American experience from two opposing viewpoints? In novelist and playwright Ayad Akhtar's latest book, we follow the rise of Trump, white supremacy, and the consequences of falling prey to American capitalism when you're a hard-working immigrant. We asked Kathy Park Hong, poet and author of the critically acclaimed essay collection Minor Feelings, to talk to Ayad about his new novel, Homeland Elegies. Together, they enter deep territory discussing everything from books that break form, meta-narration, abandoned ideas, Black American cynicism, character, and the American immigrant experience. Their conversation is smart, insightful, political, and, to be quite honest, very occasionally over my head. Here's Kathy. I just want to say it's um, I'm, it's amazing how you use the novel to track sort of the fall of American empire, its foreign policy, its unchecked capitalism, its racism, beginning from 9-11 to Trump. Um, and I remember, you know, I think, you know, I was having this conversation with a friend. Uh, we couldn't think of any sort of definitive uh, 9-11 novel or Trump novel. I don't really, I still, I don't really think such, such a novel exists, but I think if there was going to be, I was thinking at the time that if the, if there was going to be any real honest appraisal of this time period, it wouldn't become a, it wouldn't come from a white male writer, but a woman or a person of color. And I think your book really captures, uh, my theory. Um, two of the reasons why, I love the book is because it's um, it doesn't first of all it's form it doesn't read as a typical or more conventional realist novel um, it seems the novel you're using the novel more as an argument or as an essay um, it's not afraid to tell rather than just show um, because you're it seems like you're seeking to not only make people feel but persuade. And, um, and underneath that, I think it's, um, a lot, an indictment of a lot of the American values that we hold dear. Um, but really, uh, I also really fell in love with the book because of its characters, um, Mm -hmm. especially the father Mm -hmm, figure, um, you know, and for, for those who haven't really read the book, it begins with, um, the narrator's father meeting Trump and um, becoming his doctor very briefly and being lured in by his charisma. And um, the father may or may not have voted for him in 2016. I think like, you know, in the media, when they talk about the shy Trump voter, I'm thinking, oh, it's probably people like him, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the mythical. I don't think there are as many tr- as shy Trump voters as people are afraid of, but I'm thinking, Oh, it's probably immigrants like him, but anyway. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> but I also love how your own a lot of you, um, the narrator's own p- 
personal familial connections, connections were ensnared, are ensnared in a lot of these cataclysmic moments in recent history, such as 9-11 and this, um, and um, the war in the Middle East and the rise of Trump and white supremacy. And uh, so uh, I guess uh, um, after my long-winded introduction, I, this is sort of kind of my question. Um, I want to start t- uh, with the character of the father. Um, mm-hmm. I have to say, like, I recognize so much of my own father and your father. You, <laughs> I, did, I really did. I think. Where, where you, is your Where is your dad? My dad is in LA. He's Korean, he and uh-huh, um, uh-huh. and he's 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 also this like sort of aspirational Asian immigrant. Yeah. Um, but he's not like. But I don't know. I mean, I think I think a lot of these aspirational a- Asian immigrants are just kind of these cardboard cutouts of the hardworking immigrant, but right. you really manage to kind of capture the kaleidoscope of insecurity, machismo, stubbornness. Um, <laughs> that's right. You know, yeah. humor, yeah. affection, just like just all, everything that's infuriating about the inferior, I mean, the immigrant dad. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could, and especially the dad, the immigrant dad who worships a church of American capitalism, right. but then who ultimately becomes betrayed by it from other yeah. corporate apex predators and racism. Mm. And right. I think my, I could relate to, I could also relate to that with the story of my father. Right. And so I was just wondering if you could talk about this father figure, this father character, how you, how you developed him, how you developed this character um, you, and how, how challenging it was to make him such this kind of unvarnished, honest uh, immigrant, you know, because you also talk about his racism too, which I think, even if it's fiction, it seems like it would be hard to write about. (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you for the amazing uh, tribute at the the opening. Um, Mm -hmm. And really it touches me. Uh, deeply mm-hmm. and what you, some of the stuff you said, mm-hmm. he, my dad, you know, my dad is substantially the model of this father mm-hmm. in the, in mm-hmm. the book. And, mm-hmm. and I couldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't know how to, um, I wouldn't know how to create somebody who had so many sort of contradictions, contradictions. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I remember when I first encountered, um, Falstaff in, uh, Henry, the parts Henry the Foot's mm-hmm. parts one and two. And I remember reading, you know, this amazing character Falstaff and thinking, well, I, I know this guy. This guy's a lot like my dad. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that he has been a template for me of, of sort of contradiction and larger than lifeness. And I've been going to school on him as a kind of attempt to characterize and sort of put him down on paper, if you will, to kind of capture this this sense mm-hmm. of, of all these things you're talking about, the vulnerability and the machismo and the, and, and the, and the outsized gifts, you know, he was a very gifted mm-hmm. man and also a very generous man and um, mm-hmm. all of that stuff. So it wasn't too hard to write him. I think that the, the challenge for me personally was that I was losing my father to alcoholism and I'd lost, mm-hmm. he basically was, he had, he had decamped uh, about two mm-hmm. years earlier. And in a mm-hmm. way, I think writing the book was like an attempt to kind of, bring him back, if you will, you know, Mm -hmm. and as a dramatic writer, of course I am concocting and I am sharpening edges and I am compositing and I am pushing things to an extreme. And, you know, I, Mm -hmm. I, I'm creating oppositions because I think that the stronger the oppositions, the more energy is created inside a story. 
And mm-hmm. that's just my, my thinker, thinking as a dra- dramatic writer. So, so mm-hmm. I did take liberties, but the liberties I took ultimately were, you know, they were, they were intuitive. They were not conceptual. Um, mm-hmm. You know, other than the fact that, you know, very obviously the mother and the father stand in as opposite poles of, yeah. of responding to the American experience. And, mm-hmm. you know, on the, one, on the one hand, you have the caricature of Trump as embodying the, the full spectrum of American individualism. And on the other hand, you mm-hmm. have you know, Bin Laden as standing mm-hmm. in as a kind of critic of American imperialism. So mm-hmm. between those two points of view on America, uh, the politics of the book unfold. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I figured that like, it was actually based on your father, but I didn't want to say that outright. Sure. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but, uh, has he read it actually? Has he read the book? Um, so the day that I, you know, I have this very long chapter, as you know, that ends the, the book, which is about my father's, uh, about a, a, a court case that my father quote unquote yeah. in the book, uh, is, mm-hmm. it undergoes. Uh, and it's really kind of a, it's a portrait of Wisconsin, but it's also kind of a portrait of his uh, of his belonging in America or how it sort of ends. Mm-hmm. And my dad, you know, the day that I finished that chapter, my I got a call from my brother that my dad was in ICU. Uh, he was taken to ICU and he died shortly thereafter. So um, he died the yeah. day I finished the book. Oh wow. Oh yeah, which was a very strange, uh, you know, as you know, as a writer, uh, you you some strange things can happen to you when you're writing. <laughs> you can I know some very weird uh, coincidences and stuff, and this was you know the weirdest of them all. Mm-hmm. I I didn't worry that he would read it just because he you know he was drunk most of the day every day, and I can't mm-hmm. imagine he would have been able to read anything. Mm-hmm. And also, he was not a big reader. I mean, he was a he was very much mm-hmm. sort of like man of action, and uh, you know don't waste mm-hmm. my time with staring at paper kind of guy, you know? So <laughs> I didn't worry too much about that, but I also mm-hmm. knew in my gut, you know, what I was mm-hmm. doing to him, you know, and mm-hmm. I sort of stage it a bit in the book where, you know, the writer leaves the journal out and then the father sees all the notes that he's taken and, mm-hmm. you know, the father's concerned about how he's going to be portrayed in the book. You know, I sort of folded, I enfolded mm-hmm. some of my concerns and some of my worries about all of that into the book. But I, for the most part, I think my dad wouldn't have ultimately cared what I wrote about him. Knowing, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, like. Who reads what? books anyway? <laughs> <laughs> I know, like my father, when um, I was working on my last book, he was, he, he, he was, he was, he was like, is there, am I in it? He's like, you write bad things about me, don't you? I know you do, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He never actually bothered to read the book because he doesn't right. really have time to read. Um, yeah, exactly. So uh, you know, he part of his like fa- uh, flaws. I mean, he's, I think what makes him so real is that he's a very flawed character, and like all of us. But um, it, his own vulnerability is not that he's American, but he's trying so hard to prove his Americanness. He's like a fan of America, you know, rather than actually being naturally and um, inhabited in whatever it is that is Amer- American. And that it made me think about um, this quote. Uh, and it's, um, uh, it's a very fraught quote. And I was just curious what what your opinion of this, uh, mm-hmm. of your sure. own passage is, uh-huh. right, um, right. the quote is, we are more obsessed with what they think of us than what we think of ourselves. We spend mm. way too much time trying to correct the impression the West has of us 
has of who we are. We've turned this defensiveness into a way of life. Edward Said writes a book about how wrong they've been about us, and it becomes our Bible, a high road to self-knowledge, constantly defining yourself in opposition to what others say about you is not self-knowledge. It's confusion. Hmm. So I was wondering what your opinion of this passage is. Do you agree with this? Do you do you agree with it? And um, if so, how do we, I mean, how do we, how do Muslims, and I would, I would also encompass other non-white immigrants, untether ourselves from that defensive right. position? Yeah, that's an amazing question. Um, I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly how to answer it. You know, it's uh-huh. interesting the, the, when you, when in writing a, a, a book full of mm-hmm. characters and one of them notably who has my name and many of the facts of my life, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. It's hard not to, it's hard not to, I suppose, give off the impression that everything I quote unquote say in the book is something that I agree with. I I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with it. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a limited perspective. I think, I think it's an important, uh, it's, it's a thought that I've had in the past. It's Mm -hmm. a thought I've I've articulated to others uh, within my community. Mm -hmm. It's not one that I think is as useful for members who are not of my community to hear, mm-hmm. if, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, how do we tether, detether ourselves if that, if the analysis of that quote is, you know, has any, any mm-hmm. validity, then, then how to detether? I mean, I think that, I think that um, by, be, by beginning to sort of recognize that deconstructive assertion is not a creative act. Mm-hmm. And that it's incumbent on me as a writer, say, to move beyond critique and to move mm-hmm. beyond um, uh, sort of uh, problematizing discourse, right? Mm-hmm. Foucault mm-hmm. is great. Foucault mm-hmm. doesn't tell us how to build a society. Foucault mm-hmm. tells us how societies are built. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes worry that in this era of, of critical theory thinking that we've confused deconstructive assertion or systemic analysis for a constructive, creative gesture. Mm-hmm. I think it's an important part of the context. You can't maybe, you can't maybe come to a rightful gesture without it, mm-hmm. but it's not enough. Mm-hmm. And I do worry that Edward Said at times has given some of us the blueprint to think that having an awareness of discursive construction is enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I don't, I'm not sure that it is. And, and I say that as an artist, you know, I say that mm-hmm. as somebody who has to, um, at the end of the day, give the audience, give the reader a, a deep emotional and intellectual and absorbing experience. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to get it right. Mm-hmm. I have to go much further than that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you. I think it's it's a kind it's a provocative statement though, because yeah, sure. <laughs> especially in this time where mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you have it's like it almost seems as if there is no choice but to uh, define yourself in opposition in this very oppositional era. And to do so would be to kind of almost like deflect 
accountability in a way, just because of how politicized this era has yes. become. Yeah. Um, and I would argue, and you may disagree me- with me, but I would also argue what makes Homeland Elegy uh, kind of a more provocative book rather than, I don't know, say like a, a coming of age novel uh, is, is that it is oppositional. It's oppositional in the sense that, I mean, it's, I think it's artistic in its form and its portraits of all of these very, uh, contradictory characters and, um, and also it's drama and it's, uh, and the tragic comedy in it, but it's also, I think, uh, oppositional in that it gives a portrait of, of Muslims, um, living in a Christian country, Christian land. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. But but, you know, this is the thing that I often run into, you know, when with regards Mm -hmm. to the sort of identity politics of my own work Mm -hmm. is that I I'm just writing from a particular to a universal. I'm just writing about a group of people and a community and a set of histories. Um, And Mm -hmm. then from from those people, I'm writing about love and I'm writing about greed and I'm writing about society and I'm writing about Mm -hmm. the self and I'm writing about all kinds of big stuff, big ideas, mm-hmm. you know, capital, mm-hmm. capital letter stuff. I'm not writing in any conscious way to counter some perception there is about, you know, I'm often, mm-hmm. often folks will say, Oh, you know, he's a, he's writing about Muslim American identity. I'm not, no, I'm not. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I it just turns out that, that for many people seeing mm-hmm. characters who are struggling in some cases with their place in this country as mm-hmm. part of the sort of, existential circumstance of their lives Mm -hmm. um, becomes a political statement or becomes Mm -hmm. like some conscious artistic intention. Mm -hmm. It it isn't really. I mean, I was trying to use my family as to tell the story of what has happened to the American dream. Yeah. And so to me, I'm writing about America. Mm -hmm. I'm not writing in opposition to some perceived representation of Muslims Mm-hmm. Though I suspect, I suspect if I do my job well, there's going to be a richness there that will belie some of the idiotic flattening that happens, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but, but that flattening happens in bad fiction everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, yeah. and it happens across all identities and it happens across everything. I mean, it's just bad fiction is just bad fiction. So yeah, 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 yeah. No, definitely. I mean, I think like, you know, the book is not so much about identity as is, I mean, it's about a lot of things. It's not just, it doesn't, it's not about just identity. It's about money. It's about capitalism. It's also, yeah, it's, and it's very much, as I said before, it's, it's an indictment of the American dream. And I would say that it's not just uh, Muslims sort of defining themselves in opposition to what they're perceived as, but it's also kind of opposite. It's a kind of an oppositional look at sort of, this national consciousness, this white national consciousness that we have become, that we were sort of inculcated in throughout, Mm. at least throughout my life, you know, and I'm seeing that overturned in a lot of American fiction and American poetry is as what is this myth? What is this American myth? And let's see what, what it um, kind of, you know, what, what the um, kind of the histories that it's, it's, it's flattened. Um, and I think for that, it's really kind of, it's really uh, powerful. Um, I want to talk about, um, uh, jump to uh, the Scranton section. And mm-hmm. uh, the the character's name is 
Rias, is that how you pronounce mm-hmm, his mm-hmm. name? Um, who is the quote unquote merchant of debt and um, who is the founder of a hedge fund. And he's a very charming and almost and a kind of inscrutable philanthropist. And um, I, I've heard, I've read a few descriptions of this book and I've seen it uh, being compared to Great Gatsby. Right. Uh, where you just kind of Gatsby character. What would you say that's an accurate analogy? What would you say? How it's, a, it's, a, it's really kind of a funny one. I mean, I it's interesting, you know, that uh-huh. particular review I, I found sort of mm-hmm. uh, perplexing. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I guess I guess that there are certain readers I have noticed, I have sort of, you know, kind of mm-hmm. you know, clocked that there are certain readers who uh, feel centrally um, seduced by that mm-hmm. narrative at the heart of the book mm-hmm. and that there's something about the, 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 the shadow that it casts for them across the rest of the mm-hmm. events of the story that make them feel, I think that that's the central narrative experience that they're having. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm confused by that myself because mm-hmm. it is at the center of the book and yes, it is, it is there for a reason in a way and that there is something very important that I'm trying to do and say, and, and convey mm-hmm. narratively with that. But, but I think that there are narratives like most notably the, the father son thing that really is much larger frame for what this story is. Yeah. So I yeah. think, I think it's a, it's a funny, it's a funny little twist that I'm discovering. And it's interesting that you bring it up that it also struck you that way, because I do think that it partakes of a certain American represent, like there is a certain American archetype that, that, that story plays along with. And mm-hmm. that I think, think there is a way in which um, that familiarity enables or allows, you know, in, in contradistinction to the representation of the father and the sort of like the story of the father and son, which is not a traditional immigrant story as, as, as I gather and it's something that mm-hmm. a lot of people are saying. So I don't, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's hard, it's hard to say. I mean, how do you account for it? What's, what are your thoughts about that? I wouldn't, I, I wasn't think Great Gatsby wasn't the first uh, <laughs> me reference I had in mind. I thought I was, but I think I read that review. I don't remember what it was, but before I picked up the book, I read that review. And so I thought it was going to, the book was going to be about these two characters. Mm-hmm. And instead it was, it's, 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 you know, it's uh, a multiple characters, father and, um, you know, yeah. um, and your extended family and, yeah. Um, so it was, and that's one, I mean, it's, it's definitely a, an important section in the book. Um, for me, it reminded me, um, Riaz reminded me of this, uh, sto- anecdote, actually this, he, he represents a kind of, um, of my own personal familiar trope of an immigrant or a second generation immigrant. It reminds me of this one time where I was at this bar and I, there were, I never hang around hedge funders, but uh, there was this, I went to a bar and there were these hedge funders for this friend's birthday party. And I saw, I met a Korean American hedge funder and he was, um, you know, he was very successful. He was a billionaire, I believe. 
And I was just very drunk at the time. And I was asking people, I was, there are some Asians in the bar and I was just sort of asking them, do you think Asian men are more self-hating or Asian women are more self-hating? Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I went up and I was curious what he would say. So I went, I asked him, I was like, what do you think? Do you think Asian men are more self-hating or um, women are more self-hating? I was sort of doing this research for this book. And then he said, without hesitation, men and Asian Hmm. men. And I said, why? And he said, well, and obviously this is very misguided uh, of him to say, he said, well, everyone wants Asian women, like white men, black men, Latino men, they all want Asian women. No one wants Asian men. Hmm. But then he said, uh, but there are more Asian men uh, who are getting into Harvard and Yale and all of these Ivy League schools and any other demographic, and soon will be more powerful than the Jews. And I was just, I was thinking of, I don't know, I was thinking of this, that person, that guy. Sure, who, of course. When I was I thinking totally of, get it. Totally yeah, get it. when I was thinking of Riaz and I was thinking yeah. about just sort of the comp, I don't know. It just gets complicated when you're kind of using, when capitalism collides with racism or, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I, you know, as, as, and I, that's why I was really, I found, and that's why I don't see him so much as a gets Well, maybe, but like, I just found him to be very compelling how he mm-hmm. was using his mm-hmm. power as a form of vengeance. And yeah. so I, I was, I, and, and how this guy, this Korean guy was also sort of using it as to kind of gain to prove his masculinity in a way. Sure. And well, I mean, that's, but that's the thing is that, that, you know, America, that, that, prosperity, American prosperity, uh, you know, is, is, is the great equal is, is believed to be the great equalizer. Yeah. And that, that if you, you know, you know, Riaz is in pursuit of his first billion dollars, because if he can become, you know, the mm-hmm. best of the, the, if he can become part of the minority of the best, mm-hmm. that he will then finally be, you know, an American, that he will feel fully American. Um, and, you know, it's a strategy that many people in the book, you know, they, they have different strategies to do that. To, you know, I have an uncle in the book named Shafat who becomes a Christian to become, to solve the question of American belonging. And mm-hmm. Asha, you know, later in the book, you know, thinks that being with a basketball player is going to do that. And then thinks mm-hmm. that arranging her own marriage with a Pakistani is going to do some form of that. And the narrator himself goes through many different iterations of sort of, you know, how to solve this question. But I think that that certainly there, that, that the money, the money solution, if you will, is one that, that a lot of folks, it sounds like folks you, you know, or at least encountered a lot of people I know have, have, you know, settled on that as a, as a strategy to sort of solve this problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so, you know, I was thinking, um, I was thinking of that Lacanian, I, uh, quote you made, you said where you said we desire the desire of the other mm-hmm. and, uh, which seems to be the crux of the problem of this, it's, of this country. And I, I don't know. I mean, this is, I mean, as we're, I wonder though, I mean, do you think, I mean, we're heading, this is a question that's not, that's sort of drifting from 
the craft of the book and so forth. Sure, that's but, all good. All good. Well, I'm happy to talk about whatever you, whatever, yeah, wherever this goes. Then is this like, I mean, does capitalism then trump all? Does it matter? You think that like, you know, America where, uh, you know, the, the immigrants, the, the black and brown immigrants are going to be the majority in 2050. If, yeah. if, if capitalism, if, if we continue, if, you know, if it's going to be, yeah. uh, if you're continuing to, if we're going to continue live, living in this neoliberal uh, system, then it doesn't matter who is, you know, if if this I, country I is white I, or majority black or majority brown or majority anything. I do, I do worry, Kathy, that that the 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 identity politics analysis of the elements of the country is 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 short sighted. Uh-huh. And I, I, I do worry that the real issues are fundamentally economic and that the systemic problems are, sure, we've got racism, no, no question, uh-huh. um, but, but, but the systemic economic issues are actually existential and not just existential to a particular, you know, group of people, but to the, to the species. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I don't know that, um, it, it seems to me that capitalism is an equal opportunity, you know, is, is, is it's a system that benefits anybody who understands how to align itself with that system. And so I don't know that, um, I, I'm not sure, I, you know, I, I, and I think it's probably clear from the book that I'm not convinced that, 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 uh, racial justice, uh, pursuing racial justice over pursuing these more fundamental, you can, we can do them both, but, but, but not giving as much attention to the economic questions, mm-hmm. Uh, I think is ultimately going to serve us, uh, is not going to serve us well, is my worry. Well, it's inextricable. Uh, I think yeah. you can't, yes. you can't separate the two. You have to, and you can't you, talk but you, about, but you, can't, you can, you, but you can, I mean, that's what you just, we, you just suggested that we could. And I think that's the, that's the shadow side of this uh-huh. is that, that, that achieving, uh, achieving success, you know, at the end of the day, if, if folks are able to make, you know, Mike Jacobs in the book is, you know, he's a, He's yeah. a libertarian, uh, libertarian Republican who is uh, using all his money and all his wealth to make Black lives better in America, uh-huh. and and Riaz is doing the same thing for Muslims, right? Yeah. But yeah. so he's taking they're taking care of their own kind, and and if they prevail, they will they will help usher in a new era of empowerment for a particular group of people. But the system that is the predatory system that is despoiling the actual nation itself. Uh-huh. is is still very much in it's still very much at work uh-huh. so i i do think that those things can be decoupled i think that it's hard to make progress on the racial justice front without addressing some of the economic issues but i think that if we don't focus more more um clearly on the economic issues that affect the entire nation and the entire, by extension, the entire world, the human mm. human population, we're going to have uh, we're going to have a rough go of it. Time for a short break. When we come back, Ayad tries to demystify a friend's politics and examines how America pillages itself. Stick around. Welcome back to this bookable conversation with Kathy Park Hong and Ayad Akhtar. 
I want to actually pivot to my Jacob's character, but sure. I yeah. do think that it's not. I mean, I think a lot of the concerns right now is uh, not simply uh, not simply identity politics. It seems like with a lot of um, um, at least uh, people of color, it's it's racial capitalism. It's rather than um, um, uplifting up oneself. Or I think a lot of people have soured on the idea of individual triumph. Um, my, and I want to talk about Mike Jacobs. You know, sure. I think yeah. that he's. Um, I wanted to talk about how you. Uh, who uh, t- you know he's uh, he's the um, a chapter is devoted on. Um, this Hollywood agent who's black and he's, um, he's Republican and he believes, uh, there is, I mean, he's very, probably like Riaz, he's very, almost very cynical, you know, I would Mm -hmm. kind of call him an Afro-pessimist who believes, (laughs) you know, there's no way to redeem this country. So, uh, he decides to vote Republican and, so that he doesn't have to pay taxes, so he doesn't so have he to doesn't pay money have to, to the U.S. government. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but he doesn't have to pay money. But then, and I was thinking about you know this like just recently about other, you know how um, a lot of there are more black and Latinx male voters who are supporting Trump in 2020 more so than in 2016. But it's not just that he doesn't want to pay more taxes. It's also because he doesn't want, he doesn't think that his money is going to um, any, um, and any uh, uh, programs that will help black people, even if yeah. it's a Democrat in power. So he wants to take control of his own money and give it to yeah. black black programs himself. And mm-hmm. I was, what inspired, who inspired, what inspired you to write this character? And why did you decide to incorporate him in a book that, um, you know, mostly take on, um, takes on the perspectives of other Muslim Americans? Um, I, so Mike is based on somebody real, uh, mm-hmm. somebody that I've known quite some time. Um, mm-hmm. Mike's politics have, as I say in the book, or as the narrator who has my name and many of the facts of my life says Mm -hmm. in the book, um, his politics have always baffled me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Mike's perspective felt like the perfect perspective to begin to understand some of the things we were just talking about was sort of the larger economic despoiling of the country Mm -hmm. that is not about race, Mm -hmm. that is really about um, what Mary at the top of the book suggests is a kind of colonial pillage mm-hmm. that, that the country has been pillaging itself and plundering itself and individuals have treated America not as a homeland, but mm-hmm. as, a, as a place to make their fortunes mm-hmm. and that there mm-hmm. really isn't any abiding sense of loyalty to a collective. There is mm-hmm. the abiding sense of loyalty to oneself and to to mm-hmm. fulfilling the American dream, if you will, like that becomes mm-hmm. the sort of ideological, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I don't know, the, the sort of sig- the, the, sh- the short form signifier for a whole bunch of other stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so Mike in the book, Mike offers a very clear way into an analysis of just how the politics of the last 40 years, you know, notably um, antitrust regulation has led to a landscape where communities, where the heartland has been, you know, sort of impoverished, mm-hmm. where the rural regions have become impoverished, and mm-hmm. where um, 
the consumer getting the lowest price seems to have come to stand in for a kind of social covenant, uh, you mm-hmm. know, above all. Mm-hmm. And that 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 his argument as a as a black American and his ability to sort of see that because of his father's history, but also because of his own politics, provides, I think, an important dimension of this picture. This mm-hmm. picture, which at the end of the chapter, the narrator, you know, encounters it's a wonderful life uh, for the un- umpteenth time. But after this conversation with Mike Jacobs, realizes that Frank Capra was sort of expressing a vision of this version of America all along, and that it really did map against property rights, that Mm -hmm. it really was about property, and that Mm -hmm. the perspective of property is different than the perspective of, you know, uh, the human, if you will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that this is a deeper, this is a deeper struggle that's playing itself out and property has very clearly won. It's won Mm -hmm. so, so extraordinarily. I mean, it's the, the concussive, decisive victory of property rights is evidenced by the world economy being fueled by debt, that these mm-hmm. things are interconnected. Mm-hmm. So, so that's that, you know, it was important for me, I think to, you know, he, it was a kind of just, a, you know, I, 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 it wasn't planned. I got to mm-hmm. that point in the book and I knew that I would be pivoting. I was sort of coming into the home stretch and I was coming back to uh, the fundamental picture. I needed to draw a very large version very large, uh, sort of a short chapter with a very large vision of the pi- of the picture. I knew what that mm-hmm. picture would be, and I knew that Mike Mike was going to play some part in that because you know, again, as I said, he's he's based substantially on somebody real. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I think uh, I, I uh, it, he definitely seemed like he was based on a real. Uh, real character. And I was a little, I would say that was one of the chapters that I found to be a little bit surprising and a little bit shocking because I haven't seen that kind of, uh, uh, seen that perspective. I haven't read that perspective before, however, uh, definitely the cynicism Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, a lot of uh, Black Americans not believing in um, uh, American democracy because they've been because uh, they've been shut out of uh, the promise of um, uh, accruing wealth and having property and themselves being property. Uh, right, but, right, right. Um, you know, but that, which also, of course, differentiates uh, some, um, you know, Mike Jacobs, who's black too, from um, an immigrant. Um, right. Let's see. Yeah, so- that's, that's right. Yeah, I think that that's partly also part of it too, is that, you know, as a as a as a member of the sort of first generation born here uh, immigrant class, I think that you know there's been a kind of intellectual coming of age for me that I you know I've had to I've had to go to school on uh, the, on on forms of the black experience that I've been able to sort of make sense of and internalize to whatever degree I can, whether it was you know. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Malcolm X or James Baldwin or whatever, whatever it may be, or, or Mike, or, you know, who, who for a time has, you know, really been a, one of my closest friends. So mm-hmm. I think learning about race identity in America, uh, as a first generation, you know, sort of Pakistani American, I have, I have had to understand a little bit better or tried to understand a little bit better what it means to be black in this country to make sense of those questions. Well, I mean, 
Because it's like if you think about the uh, if you think about bl- uh, black enslavement, that is inextricable from capitalism, right? Because cap- the, a lot of the uh, accrual of capital in this country is based on black bodies, using black bodies as uh, um, as collateral. But um, and I and it seems like that chapter on Mike Mike Jacobs Jacobs kind of speaks to that, or that's a lot of where the yeah, foundation yeah. of his cynicism is. Is that right? Exactly. He's exactly. just like. It's just never going to, this isn't going to change. It's unchangeable. And maybe this is some of the, and and there, I think you see kind of like the existential, um, it's rage or existential acceptance or just like, this is how it is. And so I might as well game the system, which I think is, it's even, uh, again, it seems different than Riaz. I don't know why, but it just seems more. Oh, I think it is. I think, I think Riaz is, Riaz, first of all, is it's a different echelon of, of wealth and a different ability to affect uh, and also a different ambition, you know, Riaz is uh-huh. seeking to have a kind of role that Sheldon Adelson has in American politics. I mean, he has uh-huh. a, he has a pretty high dream, you know, Mike, Mike probably doesn't have the same, he's probably happy to spend, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars a year on some programs that really mean a lot to him or, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, he doesn't have that sort of expansive expansive ambition. And I think it's part of why the narrator says, you know, it felt like bullshit to me. Like it was cover for what he wanted to do, which was to make money and keep his money. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about, um, um, the, the book itself. I, I was sure. wondering, um, uh, I, I think you probably got asked, get asked this question a lot about, um, going from a playwright to a novel. And, um, I was curious, like what, books, what are some of the books that served as a model for you, uh, for this book that were an inspiration when you were working on, when you're trying to figure out the, the format of this book? It's, it's interesting. I, I, you know, there was one book that kind of set off the writing, if you will, mm-hmm, the sort of mm-hmm. like, and that was, uh, Bellows Rappelstein. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a kind of, um, you know, it was, cl- you know, Chick in, in, in Ravelstein is clearly Salt Bellow and, and, uh, Ravelstein is clearly Alan Bloom. And mm-hmm. so it was a very much, a, it's sort of one-to-one Roman clay that felt, you know, precariously close to memoir. And mm-hmm. there was a kind of vividness of, of characterization that was married to mm-hmm. really rich social history. Mm-hmm. And, and at, you know, Bellow doesn't ever sort of engage in, in outright social history, but he, but he comes close. I mean, it's a short mm-hmm. novel, so it's a very different, mm-hmm. But I think that there was the the ambition to marry ideas, experience, sensual, uh, sensual detail, and uh, and 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 strong, vivid uh, characterizations. The, I think mm-hmm. the idea of that kind of an al- alloy came from reading Ravelstein, which I read just before I started writing this book, and I didn't know I was going to be writing this book. Mm-hmm. But I remember thinking, "Wow, I this is just." Uh, I, God, why can't I write like this? <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, I think, you know, and I think the other, the other big template for me and, you know, and, and I look back now and it's clear that this book has been cooking in me for, for at least a decade. And, you know, I recognize all these mm-hmm. abandoned ideas that have been ended up sort of finding form here in this story, you know, um, mm-hmm. in this series of stories. Um, was it the, the, the Philip Roth trilogy, you know, American mm-hmm. pastoral, um, I married a communist and human stain and the mm-hmm. sort of way in which, again, the contiguousness of the narrator's consciousness 
with the text mm -hmm. makes it start to feel like there's a very intimate address to the reader. Mm -hmm. And this, this notion, sorry, there's a passing train here in downtown oh, Chatham. Sure. Let me just hold on a sec. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that to me married to the, the larger theme of the social construction of the self. And, and mm -hmm. so all, I think those were the kinds of books that, that informed the ambition or, or the sort of at least the texture of, of what it was. But as far as the formal dimension of it, I didn't have a template other than to know that I'd read so many wonderful books over the years that broke form, you know, mm -hmm. whether it was, you know, Moby Dick or whether it was uh, Tristram Shandy or, or, mm -hmm. you know, or Walden, you know, which isn't mm -hmm. a novel, but still there's this, that there's a freedom that, that, you know, if, if you have the craft to do it, uh, you can pretty much do whatever you want inside a novel. Uh, you know, there, this has, mm -hmm. I think, been demonstrated time and again um, in the history of the form. So I think it, I was less, I knew that there would probably be people who just weren't going to come along for the ride. And that was just what it was. And I, you know, you know, in this, in this time of uh, online merchandise and mm -hmm. sort of online groupthink and all of that, mm -hmm. so there, there is an increasingly... Um, prescriptive version of what a novel is in, mm -hmm. in its commercial embodiment, even in the literary form. So I knew there would, there might be some resistance to something that was a little bit more, whatever, high, highfalutin or the hijinks of form and whatnot, mm -hmm. but it didn't matter to me so much. I just thought I get, I just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see if I can, I'm gonna see if mm -hmm. I can do this and just let it, let the cards fall where they may. Uh, maybe because I'm a poet. Um, but I, I think that my favorite kinds of novels that are, are novels that always defy the genre in some way. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. You, Me too. Yeah. And there are a lot of those. There are a lot of those. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, that's what keeps the genre alive. Um, I was curious about the, the process in writing the book. Um, I know a lot of these characters are based on real uh, people did you go, did you, I was wondering if you, um, what was, the, what the research process was like? Did you interview, did you go back and interview many of these people? Um, was there any kind of, um, uh, reporting in, involved or, you know, um, or mm -hmm. maybe you could even speak about your experience sure. as a playwright. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, so it's, it's, it's a motley, motley group. I mean, some of the characters are concocted. Mm -hmm. Some mm -hmm. of them are composited. So I have mm -hmm. a couple of characters that are really strong composites of a few different points of view. Mm -hmm. And then there are two or three characters who, Mike Jacobs being one of them, mm -hmm. who, um, who is substantially based on somebody real. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, in Mike's case, I mm -hmm. shared that chapter with the original subject of mm -hmm. the portrayal. Mm -hmm. And I asked him to make comments, and where I quote him that is his quote. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. but he mm -hmm. did not want, he did not want to be formally attributed as such. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the case of my father, you know, there's a lot of uh, deforming of fact that's going into the portrayal of my father, but it again is substantially real. Mm -hmm. And um, in the case of the court case, my father did go through a malpractice lawsuit uh, in his career. It was about 10 years before he actually ended up, um, ending his career. So it wasn't quite to, at the end of his career, but I did do a, a, a lot of research and interviews of lawyers and I had all of the court transcripts. And, mm -hmm. 
but again, I substantially departed in actually shaping the the court experience. I, I departed from the you know the original. I often mm-hmm. say that um, I do all this prep and I do all this preparation and all this research, and you know sometimes mm-hmm. it'll be months and months and months of research, and mm-hmm. and then I'll quickly write a draft. And and a lot of times I'm not. I do all the research to be able to understand the difference between an arbitrary surprise and a creative surprise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And because if I don't, then I can just get lost in, you know, I can walk down some path that leads to a dead end if I don't mm-hmm. really understand very fully the world that I'm writing about. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, it ran the gamut. There was a lot of research in a couple of instances as, you know, the court case and also uh, to, to some extent this thing about Mike. But a lot of the other stuff was, as I said earlier, been cooking for so many years. I'd been accumulating, you know, all kinds of stories and, and, and episodes and scenes and, you know, a friend who had encountered the SEC and the details of that, that, that get mm-hmm. folded into my own account of the narrator and being encountering the SEC. And, you know, it's all of that stuff. It's just a typical sort of writer accumulating material over the course of a lifetime, if you will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it definitely uh, reads like that. Um, also, I, I was interestingly in the book, and I guess this is why it's sometimes um, part of the reason why people say uh, auto fiction or whatever, but um, which has kind of become a sort of played uh, term. But um, you do uh, it's there's some meta narrative uh, moments in your book, or I don't even know if meta narrative is a way to call it intertextual, where. There, uh, you write about your play and the reception of your play, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems to be, um, you know, at first it seems it, uh, ostensibly it kind of reads as a defense of your play, but more it seems to be like, it, it seems like you uh, write about um, the reception of your play as kind of to open up kind of these larger debates about uh, politics and um politics and audience and art making and um maybe the last time um but you know it, it specifically it seems to be uh the muslim reaction to your mm-hmm, play mm-hmm. you sure. know and then um and then the last and perhaps maybe one of the more sympathetic uh people who react to your plays is is this I, and confess i haven't seen it um is Sultan who says everybody has flaws. We're no exception. We're under attack in this country now. We have to stick together. So I, I wanted to. Right. Um, I, w- I was wondering if you could talk about that. Why you chose to be so transparent about uh, this narrator's play that is your play, and um, why you decided to talk about um, its reception. <laughs> So the so the opening of the book begins with an account mm-hmm. of uh, my you know the narrator's father's relationship to Donald Trump, which eventually leads to his support of Donald Trump during the election, mm-hmm. 2015, 2016, or during the campaign, and you know the the problems that that arise the, the problems that arise between father and son because of that, and mm-hmm. sort of I knew at the end of that chapter that the immediate question that that the reader would have in in retrospect, uh, you know, sort of thinking back on what they just read is how much of this is real. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so the beginning of the next chapter is um, called on autobiography mm-hmm. in which I address both directly and indirectly the question of the veracity of what people are reading. Mm-hmm. But I address that question of veracity by speaking about another work, not mm-hmm. the one that they're reading now, but mm-hmm. another one that I had written before. 
<laughs> and I give an example of how I am asked about, you know, that work and I'm asked about how much of me is in it and what people are really inquiring about is about my politics, mm -hmm. which then leads to a story about my mother, which I allege or the narrator alleges is the real source mm -hmm. of the material that was in the play that has everybody so yeah. hot and bothered, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. All of this is a very elaborate hermeneutic maneuver on my part uh -huh. to both enlist the reader in this Trump loy, if you will, this tricking of the eye, no, no pun intended. Um, and on the other hand, also to begin to, to tread the ground of what's ahead, which will eventually lead to the episode with Riaz, because on the one hand, the narrator is going to go through a real, um, rise in the world, if you will, will we'll yeah. achieve a version of the American dream to some, mm -hmm. to some consequence, to some, some nefarious consequence on the mm -hmm. one hand. And so mm -hmm. the vehicle of that transformation will be this play. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, it also allows uh, me, the writer, to begin to open up some of this contested ground around representation of Muslims and how a writer who is both writing about, but not identifying as overtly, but identified as by others overtly, a Muslim writer is dealing with all of these questions as they pertain to his own experience in America. Because that, mm -hmm. of course, is the subject of, of the Scranton chapter, where mm -hmm. he gets, Denaria gets to the end of that chapter and says, I, I, I was going to stop pretending I felt like an American. And that mm -hmm. paradoxically, that epiphany is what leads to him, his success as a writer in America. So mm -hmm. opening, so bringing the play was a very useful way for me to begin that process of doing all of that stuff. Now, that's the obvious sort of like at least the formal and the sort of conscious part of it. I'm sure there's mm -hmm. some unconscious dimension to it, which is, you know, I have had to account for my intentions and my all of that sort of stuff with some of my work over the past few years in the theater, especially after Disgrace won a Pulitzer and got so much mm -hmm. attention. You know, I've had to sort of speak to what the play is and what it isn't. And, you know, I have been subject to many, many misreadings, most of them very positive, which is often, you know, I joke, which I often joke is often, is, is really the only reason I have a career is because I've been misread so positively by people. Um, <laughs> uh -huh. And so, so the paradoxes of all of that, being, a, being an artist in an increasingly politicized discursive environment, uh, trying to write to something that is not necessarily political, but also, you know, all of those sorts of, those dimensions, those questions which preoccupy me, which are part of the experience that I'm writing about, it felt like the perfect, it, it was the perfect segue. It was the perfect way in, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and, and does allow me to partake of this, as I said, this, this Trump loy. You know, people have been using the, the term autofiction. I think of it less as autofiction because I think autofiction has a kind of inherent distance between the reader and the narrator. The, mm -hmm. the, the writer almost has to go out of his or her way to sort of say, yes, I know it's based on me, but this is not me. But mm -hmm. here, here the book is really saying, you know what? I want you to confuse this with me. And then I'd like to get closer to you, reader, than, than usual. I would, and so I kind of think of it more like a like a real a literary version of kind of reality TV seduction, if you will. <laughs> reality TV, I, I guess yeah. it would be a more popular, uh, lower brow. Although I don't know, uh, is Louis, there's a lot of quality reality TV there out there too. Um, 
Yeah, no, I think I, uh, I was thinking about that as you were opening it up. Uh, you started with the play, uh, with your play, and then you, it opened up to the speaker's mother and how, I guess, the quote that uh, was very uh, controversial, they deserve what they got and what they're going to get, right? Right. Um, mm-hmm. right. And um, that's uh, uh, being attributed to the mother figure, who I found to be a very uh, compelling and tragic um um, and complex woman, and I was, and in, in, and as well as the other women in in your book as well. Um, I we're I, I just had one um, which I would love to get to, but we're almost out of time. And I just wanted to ask one question, sure. one last question. Um, the book ends, um, you know, uh, you know, um, with uh, the father ends up back in Pakistan, yeah, and um, the narrator after renouncing his Americanness, uh, calls America his home. Yeah. And, um, and I thought it was, it made the book complete in a way, but I'm wondering, um, just, you know, I have to ask since we're only a few days away from Tuesday, (laughs) Yeah, you know, and you coming from Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Milwaukee, like what are your thoughts now, you know, in terms of this country, uh, you know, a lot of your book is uh, kind of covers the trauma of 2016, the elections. And um, do you have any, I don't know, you could just really say anything, any thoughts sure. or predictions about. Um, I don't, you know, I don't, I, I don't have a prediction. I mean, obviously I think we all are sort of thinking, I think maybe with better, with mm-hmm. better reason to think so that, that, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we'll probably have an outcome at the end of, uh, at the end of whatever this next period is that will be a little bit uh, saner for mm-hmm. our, our, our lives. Um, I do continue to worry that, that the structural, the underlying structural tensions and problems uh, that Trump was not the problem. He ended up becoming a problem. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. he has been a big problem. You know, he's almost like, you know, if, if the cancer was caused by some toxicity in the environment, well, the cancer is ultimately what ends up killing you. But if you cure that cancer and you don't change the environment, you're going to have cancer again. Mm-hmm. And I think that we're in an environment where, yes, it's incumbent on us. It's imperative that we get rid of Trump. But I think he's not the problem. Mm-hmm. And that we have created, we've created an environment where Trump is possible. And that to me, I mean, I, look, I don't want to, I don't want to stretch the far metaphor too much, but I have spoken on a couple of occasions about parallels with the late Roman Republic. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think, um, one of the things in retrospect with the hindsight of, a, you know, a few thousand years, um, we can sort of see that, that Caesar's attempt to centralize power, which was expressing some breakdown in the society, you know, not entirely caused by Caesar's own will to power, but that his will to power was an expression of some impulse within the society, it's a Hegelian reading of, of the events. Mm-hmm. Um, that, 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 that Caesar's attempt to centralize power did not succeed. Mm-hmm. And that the Republic fighting back only served to actually undermine the rest of those Republican fundamentals that led ultimately to Augustus. Mm-hmm. And that Augustus was the one who centralized power and led to 200 years of you know, prosperity and peace, but under authoritarian rule. 
mm-hmm. and that I worry that there are parallels if you look at the arist- you know the relationship of the aristocrats to the, the social body and you look at sort of you know the collapse of the of the breakdown of the monop- the monopoly on violence that the state generally tends to have and which legitimizes its rule I think that you there is a case to be made that we are in the very earliest stages of a collapse of certain fundaments that could very well lead to the kind of centralized centralizing of power that Trump has represented in its kind of dysfunctional form and that its next embodiment will be far, far more effective. Um, And so 24, 28, I mean, I think that there are much larger societal questions at at play here. And to me, they all ultimately boil down to where the money is going. And I don't see it as simple as billionaires own everything, though I think that's certainly a valid way of seeing it, an important Mm -hmm. sort of gloss on it. I think that the system has incentivized decision-making in a certain way, and that this monetizing imperative is creating a a whole set or whole thicket of of problems for us that if we don't figure out how to deal with, are going to continue to create the kind of widespread discontent and nihilism that has led to Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that's sort of my larger sort of thing about it. I, I, I hope that we can move the needle uh, in a positive direction. And, and hopefully this younger generation of, of folks thinking about um, something other than, you know, individualism and, 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 you know, maybe there will be meaningful economic reform um, and that we will begin to countenance the possibility of, of things like community, uh, community stakeholdership when it comes to shareholder rights. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's just a lot of stuff that's off the table in, in 21st century America because of, because the ideological uh, soil has been so fully tilled, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and so we can't really even talk about certain things, mm-hmm. but hopefully that'll change. Well, one hopes and, you know, one hopes that can change. <laughs> I hope so, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you, Kathy and Aya, for such an insightful and meaningful conversation. I will now go look up some words in the dictionary. Kathy Park Hong is the author of Minor Feelings. It's published by One World and is available now. Ayat Akhtar is the author of Homeland Elegies, a novel. It's published by Little Brown and Company and is also available now. Bookable is a production of Loud Tree Media. I'm your host, Amanda Stern. Five feet tall, but 5'8 if you're using the Electoral College. We're produced by me, Bo Friedlander, and Andrew Dunn, who also mixes and sound designs the show. Bo is Loudtree's editor-in-chief. Find us on the web at bookablepod.com and subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And if you want to learn more about our guests, find us on Instagram at bookablepod and follow me, your host, at a little stern. We're back next week with another new episode of Bookable and we will see you then. This is bookable.